Ever get a lab report back marked QNS, quantity not sufficient? How frustrated were you? What if you needed a life-saving medical procedure and your insurance was QNS? Well, that's what's happening to 10 million American children whose insurance is QNS for immunizations. They have insurance, but they are underinsured. To learn more, stay tuned to this special segment on healthcare policy financing of immunizations for the uninsured on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Abramson. Dr. Abramson is the Weston M. Kelsey Professor and Chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Wake Forest University School of Medicine and the Physician-in-Chief of Brenner Children's Hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. From 1999 to 2003, Dr. Abramson was Chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Infectious Diseases. He serves on the Task Force on Immunizations and the Committee on Federal Government Affairs. He was most recently chair of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, also known as ASIM. Today we are discussing financing immunizations in an era of increasing costs and decreasing resources. Hi, Dr. Abramson. Thanks for taking the time to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Well, thank you for having me. 10 million uninsured children. Is that in addition to the 6 million uninsured children? I mean, it's 20% of the American population of children. Yeah, it's probably pretty close to that because they actually the, one of the strange things about vaccines is that the non-insured children or those children who have Medicaid, actually uh, there is a entitlement program that makes sure they get their vaccines. What happened to the old ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? <laughs> How did we get in this situation? You know, I ask myself that a lot. This country spends approximately... 2% of its healthcare dollars on prevention. And yet, I know if we asked all your listeners out there, would they rather prevent a disease or then have to treat a disease? Every one of them would say they'd rather prevent a disease. No program, no program has been more effective at preventing diseases than immunizations. Is the cost of the vaccines and the number of vaccines, has that led to the problem? Well, it's part of the problem. When I actually started in the Red Book, and then took over afterwards as chair of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, I could see during that time that there were a number of vaccines coming down the pipeline that were, one, going to be more expensive, and two, as far as number of vaccines in a short period of time, we've never experienced anything like that before. And so many years ago, vaccines were um, so cheap that, the companies were getting out of the business, and we went from 12 vaccine manufacturers to four. But as they've been able to charge more for vaccines and actually get the government to pay some more for vaccines, then many more companies have been coming along into the vaccine market. Is the government still the biggest purchaser of vaccine? It's about, the last I looked, about 45%. The government and 55% private. Did you get to see Michael Moore's movie, Sicko? Yes, I did. One of the points he makes is the cost of medicine in this country versus other countries. Would the vaccines be so expensive elsewhere? Well, a good example of that is England, where there's one person, right now it's a guy named Dr. David Salisbury, and he does the negotiating for all of the United Kingdom. 
And so what costs them to buy the same vaccines is, is substantially less than what it costs in the United States. So there are countries out there that are able to get the vaccines cheaper than we are. And then obviously in the developing countries, vaccines are much cheaper, but they have a lot less choices of vaccines. Isn't there something wrong with this situation? We have all these underinsured children, and we know the vaccines could be made available for a significantly less amount of money? Yeah, it's not even penny-wise pound foolish. It's much worse than that. Because right now, if we didn't have vaccines compared to what we have, we're right now saving $10 billion of direct medical costs per year and $42 billion to societal costs. And so one has to remember that vaccines are not only to protect the individual, they also help protect others in society who either choose not to get the vaccines or actually have some sort of immune system problem that they can't respond to the vaccines. It's interesting you say that in terms of the amount of money that could be saved. I did a rough calculation in preparation for talking with you that the cost to immunize one child in the public sector in 2007 is $1,170 times roughly 10 million uninsured children is a little over $10 billion. Well, that's 20% of what they could save by immunizing the children. And in another perspective, that's what we spend on five weeks in the war in Iraq. Well, many of us have made many of those points about vaccines are a cost savings proposition. They prevent some very bad diseases, some of which parents don't even remember anymore. That you know, you say polio. If you said polio in the 1950s, you sent a, a shiver into that town that had it, and people wouldn't let their children go in pools, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If you say polio to a parent now, they, they look at you like, what are you talking about? Because of how successful they've been, we've actually have our parents at, at this point, some of them become complacent about protecting their children. For those of you that are just joining us, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and my guest today is Dr. John Abramson. We've been discussing financing immunizations for the underinsured. To get back to the policy issues, what sources of funding are available for an underinsured child? Can they get vaccine? The problem is exactly the underinsured child. So a child who has no insurance or who has Medicaid insurance, who's a U.S. citizen, can get vaccines. There's a a source of money that has to be there. It's an entitlement rather than a... Congress doesn't have to approve it. It's just there, the money. The child is underinsured, and by that, what do we mean? I think it's important we define what we mean. It's a child who has some insurance, but it doesn't cover all of the costs of the vaccine, and sometimes doesn't even cover any of the costs, and the parents have to pay it out. But most of the time, it only covers part of the cost of the vaccines. And there's been a recent article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that's highlighted the extent of that problem. And in fact, what it's caused in this country is the prioritization of vaccines, which is, from my standpoint, something that should never happen. To throw in a couple of numbers from that article, 
It stated that in the private sector, 46% of states didn't provide publicly purchased varicella vaccine to underinsured children, and 70% did not provide meningococcal conjugate vaccine. In the public sector, that was 17% for the pneumococcal and 40% for the meningococcal vaccines. In an editorial in that same issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Matthew Davis wrote, Today's problem of underinsurance is principally a result of replacing prioritization of recommended vaccines. Administrators and public officials prioritize certain recommended vaccines over others, likely using different rationales such as cost, cost effectiveness, clinical burden of the preventable disease. What is the cost-benefit ratio of immunizing these children, and what about prioritizing the vaccines, as he proposed? Let's take on prioritization of vaccines. I think it's a terrible idea. And in fact, right now, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and the American College of OBGYN are writing a statement coming out and basically saying this is a bad, bad idea, that this is the richest country in the world, that it can't fully immunize all of its children is from our standpoint, a disgrace. But if we had to put it through the politicians, would prioritization be better than what we have now? No, I don't think so. I think we can't. This is not a a place for compromise. The answer is all our children should get all recommended vaccines. Is there something that we physicians should be doing to support universal immunizations? Yes, I think advocacy is absolutely needed here. As you may well know, the American Academy of Pediatrics has believed for a long time that all children should have be covered by insurance just like all um, adults 65 and older are, and that part of that should be vaccines, and we should be advocating for that. But short of that, we certainly should be advocating that all our children get their vaccines because we're not only protecting the individual child, we're protecting other children and adults. And a good example of that is the conjugated pneumococcal vaccine, where that vaccine has decreased the incidence of serious disease due to that bacteria by 75% in children who get the vaccine and 30% in adults who don't get the vaccine, but because the children aren't carrying the bacteria in their nose, don't get the disease. What would you offer as a plan to finance vaccines for children? Well, now I'm going to give you my own personal opinion. Please, yes. And I think that is a combination. There are four states right now that have a universal vaccine program where all the vaccines that are recommended are just given to the doctors who then charge an administration fee. So the doctors don't have to worry about paying for the vaccine and then charging their patients. They just get the vaccine in their office for free and then give the vaccine. And those four states do it on a combination of federal dollars and businesses, including employees and insurance companies, all contributing to buying those vaccines. And I think that's a great, great way to do it. There are other ways to do it, and I certainly think that there's compromise about how to do it, but not if it should be done. People always ask, what's the source of the funding? Do you have any thoughts on how you would fund this? Well, I think right now the federal government pays for about half and business and 
you know, various businesses pay for about half, and I think I just create a pool where those funds would be, you know, sent in and the vaccines would be purchased. If you were going to write the headline for tomorrow's newspaper, what would it say about immunization financing? Immunization financing, the system is broken. And in fact, the National Vaccine Advisory Committee right now is taking on this issue, trying to find ways to fix it. I'd like to thank you for joining us today at the Clinician's Roundtable. I've been speaking with Dr. John Abramson, and we have been discussing vaccine financing. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to a special segment on healthcare policy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and enjoy our new on-demand and podcast features, which give you access to our entire program library. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health.